0: This week on the Back Table podcast. We created a system, actually, in part drawing from many of the aspects of structural competency curriculum, to do community grand rounds where we flip the script on the expertise rather than being from academic medicine, faculty, and clinicians. It's from community members and then offer a space to dialogue about medical trauma and healthcare equity between community members, medical students, and faculty at UCSF. And I think that's a really promising model that I would say to seek out and create is sort of structural competency in action. It's creating that conversation and co-creating goals for health equity with community members and with people with very diverse positionalities and power and access and working collectively. I think that's the goal of structural competency and that's what's sustained me and everybody can find a place in that to do that work.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Podcast, your source for conversations in health equity. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Vishal Kumar as your host for this week. Special thanks to Aaron and the Backtable Podcast team for offering this space as a means to center the conversation around health inequity. In our previous conversation with Dr. Ayana Bennett, physician, chief health equity officer, and director of the Office of Health Equity for San Francisco, we briefly began to explore the concepts of social determinants of health. Today, we hope to expand on that and have the distinct privilege of welcoming Dr. Kelly Ray Knight to the show. Dr. Kelly Ray Knight, PhD, is a medical anthropologist, professor, and vice chair in the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. Her work centers on the experiences of poverty and addiction in clinical and community contexts, racism, homelessness, and health disparities, and health conditions produced or exacerbated by structural violence. Dr. Knight is currently principal investigator and co-investigator on NIH-funded ethnographic studies examining social and policy implications of homelessness and the clinical and social consequences of the U.S. opioid overdose crisis. Dr. Knight has published 65 peer-reviewed journal articles and an award-winning book-length ethnographic study of people who are opioid dependent, unstably housed and pregnant, entitled, Addicted, Pregnant, Poor. She serves as core curricular liaison for the Anti-Oppressive Curriculum Initiative in the UCSF School of Medicine, and is on the steering committee for the Benioff Housing and Homelessness Initiative at the UCSF Center for Vulnerable Populations. Concurrent to her 25 plus year research career, she served as co-founder and volunteer site coordinator for a syringe access program serving homeless and unstably housed trans women and women identifying people, as well as an outreach worker in single room occupancy hotels both programs in San Francisco, California, where she lives. Dr. Knight, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You know, as part of the UCSF Graduate Medical Education College, I remember when you gave us uh, that kind of landmark presentation on structural competency. You started with the Dr. Rudolf Virchow quote. By chance, do you recall which quote you had at the beginning of that talk?
0: Oh yes, I don't know if I can if I can quote it exactly, but it's basically for medicine to achieve her greatest victory, we must attend to the social causes of illness and harm. Basically, that's a paraphrase. I don't remember the exact quote, but what Virchow was basically indicating us toward in the in the nineteenth century, which is when he wrote that quote, was that we need to remain aware of the social and structural determinants of health. In medicine in order to be able to provide the clinical care that's needed and Virchow was specifically addressing the typhus epidemic that was in the Austro-Hungarian empire at the time related to lack of sanitary housing and, and working conditions.
1: So you mentioned the social determinants of health. For those who may be unfamiliar with the terminology or maybe who weren't exposed to it during their medical education, What specifically are we referring to when you speak of social determinants of health?
0: Yeah, so the social determinants of health is a framework that has us consider healthcare and the experiences of clinical care as one of the determinants that produce either vulnerability to illness or poor outcomes as a result of healthcare access. So while many people consider healthcare to be the the main determinant, sort of your experience of being able to access healthcare, or your experience once you're accessing healthcare, your quality of care, the types of treatments that you're able to access once you've become ill in your management of chronic disease or infectious disease. The the social determinants of health framework points us to that as one aspect that can produce poor health outcomes for people. But other aspects such as your history, your educational history, the neighborhood you live in, the types of employment that you have access, the conditions of your housing. These are social, socially uh, formulated determinants that actually play a, a significant role in both, you know, your vulnerability to becoming ill. As well as your trajectory once you've become ill in a healthcare setting. So, what social determinants of health framework points us toward is is really not losing track of the prevention um, and response interventions that can happen outside of clinical settings, um, and not rely on healthcare alone to produce health equity or positive health outcomes for the population.
1: So, if I'm hearing you correctly, the framework forces us as providers to look at where our patients and communities are living, what sort of exposures they have in their neighborhoods, and taking that into context as how it pertains to their health care and their health outcomes. Would that sound correct?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's more than taking it into context. It's actually recognizing what a powerful influencer it can be in producing health outcomes and the ways in which it's interacting with the healthcare care setting itself. So well, many I used to talk to my students about, you know, what do you think are the main influences? You know, what role does healthcare play in producing health inequities? And you know, if you had to give it a percentage, what percentage would you would you say it influences healthcare outcomes for populations? And they would guess, you know, maybe seventy five percent of health outcomes are determined by healthcare interactions. Uh, you know, what happens in terms of access and treatment, as I mentioned before, and it's actually fifteen percent. It's actually a much smaller percent. And what we found through basically five generations of clinical and community-based epidemiological studies that have looked at what produces vulnerability to becoming ill and to having poor health outcomes once you've become ill, we see that these factors of education, of access to, to employment, uh, housing, neighborhood level factors influence that in a tremendous way and can create the conditions of possibility for vulnerability to illness prior to healthcare interactions at all. So it's really accounting for the social context under which people experience their everyday lives is critically important as a healthcare endeavor, as a health equity goal. So
1: how do we then go from the social determinants of health to the broader framework of structural competency?
0: Sure. So social determinants of health, as I mentioned, is based on, you know, over, I mean, five generations of clinical and community based epidemiology. And even further than that, if you go back to Virchow and other other social medicine scholars and physicians in the 19th and 20th century who identified social context as being critically important to health, especially important to the health of structurally marginalized communities that are living in poor housing conditions, living in poverty, So that's a really important recognition that social determinants of health leads us toward what structural competency as a framework is trying to do is to pull back further than that and say, we know that poverty and inequality, that the social context that produce poverty and inequality, the social determinants of health produce poor health. And we, we have a lot of evidence to support that. What structural competency wants to ask is, what are the economic policies and economic systems? And social hierarchies, the ways that we organize our society, let's say, toward supporting policies that are structurally racist, that marginalize communities based on ability, sexual orientation, perceived race and ethnicity, the ways that we create policies and systems that may be largely invisible, but actually create the conditions of poverty and inequality that produce the poor health. So structural competency wants us to look at the structural determinants of the social determinants of health and say, let's intervene at that level and think about policies and systems and structural interventions that can then change the conditions of possibility to reduce poverty and inequality, which will then improve health. So it's really a pulling back from social determinants of health, and targeting, actively targeting uh, structural change.
1: By your estimates, what percent of all medical schools, including DO programs, are implementing some degree of structural competency into their own curriculums?
0: You know, I can't say. It's changing. I, I, can't, I can't put a number on it, but I think that the move toward more incorporation of structural competency has been increasing over the time I've been involved in actively involved in structural competency curriculum development, which has been since about 2014. I'm part of a national uh, social medicine network that shares curricula across about 15 different medical schools in the country. And we also have a global component that's looking at social medicine and the introduction of structural analyses into academic medicine on a global scale outside of the, you know, including the U.S. and, and outside of it. And so I can tell you that the movement toward including structural competency and its adjacent health equity focuses, whether it's anti-oppressive curriculum, curriculum focused on um, anti-racist medicine and research in academic medicine and training to do so, these are all associated to uh, structural competency goals. And that's been growing actively over the course of almost 10 years that I've been working in structural competency work. And the ways that I see that is the ways that we share curriculum and the training that our group, the Structural Competency Working Group, which developed a curriculum that's open sourced on MedEd portal and available. The demand for our trainings that we've been receiving has has escalated significantly over the past several years where, you know, other universities and academic medical centers, whether it's nursing, physician training, physical therapy, are interested in calling out for us to come and help support their development of curriculum at their institutions.
1: You talk about the shared curriculum and the MedEd portal. It's worth mentioning that the ACGME Clinical Learning Environment Review Healthcare Quality Pathway 5 made specific recommendations for resident, fellow, and faculty member education specifically towards reducing healthcare disparities, which can ultimately inform many of the quality improvement activities that are occurring locally. In your 2020 article describing the structural competency release, I was fascinated by the fact that your group could have such an effective result within such a short period of time with this intervention. Could you tell us about your learning experience in creating this curriculum?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, the Structural Competency Working Group started in 2014 and even earlier than that with a proposal that was generated in the Joint Program in Medical Anthropology at UCSF and UC Berkeley that was originally called Radical Experiments in Medicine. And the goal was to reconsider the way that medicine and medical education operated in light of having a structural analysis as part of training from the beginning of undergraduate medical school all the way through residency and beyond in, in faculty training. And from that group forming, we one of one group was a curriculum development subgroup. and we did our first training development at a federally qualified health center here in the Bay Area. that was a split faculty and uh, resident trainee training and did uh, some qualitative evaluation of the experience of the trainees in that program um, and published that first article in the, the Journal of General Internal Medicine. With our results, again, positive results, as you indicated, saying that the trainees in that first training really appreciated having a space to have a conversation about the structural determinants, particularly structural racism, lack of access to housing, extreme poverty, and the limited resources that they saw in their safety net healthcare delivery setting to be able to appropriately treat the patients that they were trying to care for. So they really appreciated being able to have that conversation because there was already a recognition that these factors were influencing the patients that they were treating their health significantly. At the same time, they also really gave us feedback during that first evaluation that they wanted some solutions. They wanted to move beyond the recognition of the problem of structural violence in their patients' lives and structural vulnerability. And so we added to our training after that the levels of intervention, which is now a a constant part of our training of thinking about the levels at which you can intervene in a structurally competent manner as a clinician trying to practice structurally competent medicine. In the settings in which you were working. And that later became the iteration that we then ended up doing multiple trainings for, including at UCSF in the undergraduate medical education for several years and formed the basis for the curriculum that we released on MedEd Portal. So it was an iterative process over time with a lot of feedback. From the clinicians that we were seeking to train and working with, it was always a, a diverse group of curriculum developers, which I think is critical to the work of structural competency. So it included physicians, it included anthropologists, people who had social scientific training in concepts and theories that were important, but it also importantly included advocates and clergy, people who were working in the space of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion in their institutions, all coming together to inform the curriculum. And then again, iteratively be informed through qualitative research from the people we were actually trying to create the training for so that we could improve it over time. And I think that was all very helpful. And it's it's still an iterative process. It's a structural competency curriculum is designed around some key conceptual interventions that are drawn from social scientific theory to think structurally. But then it's designed with the flexibility for for institutions and groups to be able to modify it according to how their needs are. And we've done some of that here in San Francisco with community partners.
1: In your curriculum, you mentioned structural violence. Mm -hmm. Uh, Working at a safety net hospital and level one trauma center, we see countless instances of patients succumbing to different types of violence, but structural violence is not a term or phrase that is something I'm very familiar with. How should our listener think about structural violence as it pertains to the patients and the communities that they treat?
0: Yeah, great question. Structural violence is a concept and it was probably made most famous by Paul Farmer, who recently passed away and was a physician scholar, medical anthropologist who worked very much in the space of, of health equity and improving clinical care for structurally vulnerable communities. And he used the term to talk about the ways in which disadvantage is built into, again, to policies and systems in ways that are hard to see. So it's structural because it's built into the system. And I'll give you some examples to make this more concrete. But it's built into the system. It's violent because it does harm. To people. It produces vulnerability to disease. It makes folks more likely to experience morbidity and mortality if they do succumb to a chronic or infectious disease. And so that's where the term really comes from. It's trying to look at that it's structurally embedded and sometimes hard to see, and then it produces harm in the long run. So some examples of, of that one example uh, that we often use in our training, in our structural competency training, is redlining. So redlining was an it was a, as many people are aware was an intentional federal policy to limit uh, home loans to communities of people who lived in neighborhoods that were marked that were redlined as being uh, poor risks for loans and it was highly racialized so it was targeting immigrant communities black and brown people who were living in those communities and made their ability to gain home ownership through loans difficult if not impossible. So it was an intentional segregating, community segregating policy that the federal government supported. So the discrimination was built in to the policy, and that's the structural piece. The harm that it caused was that we know that home ownership is the main way in which families and communities build wealth in the U.S. And we know that lack of homeownership places people at other financial vulnerability In terms of their ability to be able to pay for education, to be able to use their uh, home ownership as collateral for other family goals that they may have in order to increase financial stability. So we see a policy that ostensibly is about giving people loans for home ownership, having tremendous health impacts, because when you map, let's say, and we've done this in our training, when you map the red line districts in, let's say, in just in Alameda County, in the East Bay, and you map the prevalence of chronic disease and lack of healthcare access and extreme poverty, the maps match exactly. So we can see that the consequences of a structurally violent policy of redlining, the long term health consequences are exactly concentrated in the same areas. That communities that were denied those loans through that racist policy experienced poorer health. And worst health outcomes at a population level. And so that's a good example of a structurally violent policy. So when community and leveraged further forms of community abandonment because home ownership decreased wealth for the communities in those areas, entirely based on discrimination, racist discrimination.
1: Well, I wanted to thank you for mentioning Dr. Paul Farmer. I remember reading his book, uh, Mountains Beyond Mountains as a medical student. I know he's a true pioneer in global health. Uh, And also, just in hearing your conversation about structural violence and the effects it has on patients and their communities, I can't help but hear about the intentionality of the history, the policies, the intentional disinvestment in the communities. And so how do clinicians begin to grapple with such policy-level Change when many maybe feel so ill equipped to take on such a
0: monumental task? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a big question. I mean, I think I'm going to break it apart a little bit. So, the first part is the acknowledgement and the recognition piece, which is sort of where you started to really understand the historical legacies of disinvestment and intentional discrimination that many structurally vulnerable communities have experienced. Decades, decades prior to the person crossing the threshold into your clinical care room and the ways in which that history is still carried with them in many ways into their current healthcare status and the interactions and also their interactions with medical institutions and their justified suspicion of those institutions as places that may be able to take care of them in an equitable and fair manner. So... Acknowledging the history is important. Within my own department, because we're the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences at UCSF, we started and host in our department the Repair Project, which is a three-year initiative specifically focused on anti-Black racism in medicine and science. And so we have done a series of events that's very aligned with the tenets and goals of structural competency to focus on that history and the long impacts that that history has had for structurally vulnerable communities in medicine and science. So I think that's one avenue. And we have had a tremendous response from clinicians all over the country, but also, of course, here at UCSF for the value of being able to look through the history of health sciences. Methodologies through medical anthropology methodologies to really understand the history and the current impacts that that has, and then tackle issues that are significant and concrete, such as medical reparations, medical abolition, decolonization of medicine. So that's one avenue. If you're a singular physician, in terms of, so that's education. That's education, that's knowing the history and recognizing it and acknowledging it publicly, and then collectively figuring out a pathway forward. And the only pathway forward is to include communities that have been impacted in a meaningful way. And I think one of the papers that I really like that's been really influential in my work and continuing work to think about structural competency just came out recently. But it's a bigger conversation about health equity scholarship by Lett and colleagues who really try and think about what kind of process do medical institutions, academic medical institutions need to have with community members and community partners who've been harmed by historically structural, structurally violent policies? And how can persons inside medical institutions be an active participant in making change to how care takes place? So the education piece is critical, but then the action piece is equally critical. And I would say part of that is physicians becoming educated about structural competency and what it may have to offer them, about how to do health equity scholarship, how to do community-based participatory research, how to respect community expertise in their own learning. And there's been a tremendous movement toward that in medical education, particularly this year at UCSF, that I think is a very welcome and long overdue sea change in the ways that academic medicine institutions interact with community and community members who've experienced a lot of medical trauma and medical harm, both as a result of structurally violent policies and as a result of of medicine and medical institutions not acknowledging the harm that that has taken place. So I think that recognition is, is critical. I think that's a starting point. As a singular physician who wants to have a structurally competent practice and be able to practice in this way, I think it starts with listening. As my colleague Rupa Maria, who is a physician here at UCSF and runs the Do No Harm Coalition, always speaks to the importance of Being taught to listen to patients and be attentive to what they're trying to tell you about their bodies, about their experiences, and about what they need in clinical care settings. And then think about the points of intervention that you feel like you can take on as a singular physician. So that could be intrapersonally, borrowing from the structural competency levels of intervention framework, intrapersonally, that's the work you need to do on yourself. We all need to do on ourselves to be structurally competent, to be anti-racist and and anti-oppressive in our work in academic medicine. Interpersonally, it could be thinking about your communication strategies. And the listening piece that I just mentioned is one aspect of that, one way to think about how you are interacting in clinical space with your patients. Thirdly, is thinking about the clinical space. You know, we know that clinicians particularly in safety net settings who are trying to do primary care delivery or emergency medicine or hospitalist medicine in settings that are resource strapped, experience a lot of constraints. And how do we create clinical spaces that are more focused on healing within that context, I think, is a, is a structurally competent, critical question for physicians where physicians can do a lot of work. And then, of course, there's research. So in the repair project that I mentioned at UCSF, Department of Humanities and Social Sciences, we focus on training in anti-racist research and thinking about pedagogy and approaches to that so that research can help produce in concert with those who are part of the research, being researched and partnering with you to produce uh, solutions that are structurally competent. Um, And then in the realm of policy, actually working with electeds Working with people who think about payer systems, the ways in which all of the sort of behind the scenes of a capitalist healthcare system that we exist in in the U.S., how that operates, and ways to create equity at a policy level for the folks who bear the brunt of that, which are the structurally marginalized patients.
1: Well, I thank you for that incredibly comprehensive response for all the ways I think we can look to be better. Part of your work talked about naturalizing inequality. Or how I think that's a recurring theme in medicine and your intervention seem to have a very positive benefit, I think, on the participants and providers in reframing their thinking about patients. Dr. Knight, could you maybe enlighten us on sort of how we can start to reframe what we are hearing from our patients and how we interpret what they're saying to us when we're supposed to be listening?
0: Yeah, absolutely. This is a big focus. Uh, It's a key concept. And structural competency, and it's very dear to my heart because I work in the space of addiction medicine, where naturalizing inequalities is a rampant problem. And so what naturalizing inequalities means is it's the ways in which we attribute poor health to individual patients based on biological susceptibility, based on cultural explanations for why they are susceptible to a certain chronic disease. And rather than attending to the structural reasons that may be contributing to why someone uh, has crossed the threshold and is, and is seeking clinical care, so in the space of addiction medicine, we see that individual choices and failure are attributed to individual patients at sort of a, a much higher rate and to explain what, how, you know how they ended up here. Rather than trying to understand the larger social and structural context of their lives that made them increasingly vulnerable to chaotic drug use and the consequences of that use, for example, which could include lack of access to housing, um, lack of trauma-informed counseling, mental health services... Et cetera, etc, cetera. inability to be able to seek gainful employment, to be able to afford housing because of a criminal record because their substance use was criminalized and they were incarcerated as a result of it. All of these contexts contribute to an individual experience of a person with a substance use disorder that often gets discounted the minute they show up in emergency room after having experienced an opioid overdose, for example. And so, What gets naturalized is the inequalities that the systems of inequality that put that person at risk. The lack of a safety net, lack of affordable housing, terrible drug policies and the war on drugs that incarcerated this, that punished them for their substance use disorder rather than providing help. Policies that underfund mental health services for individuals who really need them or don't offer them in a trauma informed manner, even though we know trauma, both childhood and adult is highly prevalent amongst people with substance use disorder, whether they're experiencing homelessness or not. These are all policies. These are all decisions that we've made as a society about how we want to fund or not fund support systems, and those disappear. And the person looks like a person who makes bad choices. And maybe they make bad choices because of, and maybe even the community that they belong to or the neighborhood that they live in is associated with open-air drug use. And the idea that they are sort of labeled and associated, all of that becomes who they are, and the structural pieces get lost. And so we try and think in structural competency training about how that happens and how that's happening in clinical settings and un- unseat that, disrupt that process, and have the uh, whole person and their social and structural circumstances not get lost in the clinical setting so that we can actually provide supports beyond just whatever sort of clinical intervention that individual may need in that particular moment, but longer term, you know, structural support to be able to, uh, they can make decisions around their substance use and substance use disorder that are less harmful to themselves and to their communities.
1: You know, in the article, it mentioned or your group discusses how the shift in perspective away from victim blaming helped promote provider empathy especially towards structurally vulnerable patients, and several participants expressed that the training reconnected them to their original motivations to pursue a career in healthcare. Your group went on to mention, as burnout has been found to be inversely correlated with both empathy for patients and a sense of meaning or purpose in one work, Dr. Knight, could structural competency training actually help reduce physician burnout?
0: I hope so, in the sense that it offers physicians two things that I'll name. First, it offers them, again, the opportunity to identify and name the ways that social and structural forms of oppression that their patients are experiencing are entering into health and clinical space. And that's well known. I've done hundreds of structural competency trainings at this point, and I've met very few trainees in those workshops who are shocked at the forms of structural violence that their patients are experiencing, There's an awareness of it, and I think it's more the sense of, I can't do anything about this, or this is out of my wheelhouse, or I don't know what to do about it, that creates the dissonance in the clinical settings. So I'm sure there's many people who who do need that baseline education, but I think it's more a way of recognizing it and talking about it. And then again, thinking about what are the solutions that an individual physician can take on to be able to remediate that. And then the second thing I think structural competency training offers is a look at the system, the healthcare system itself. Burnout is being produced by the way that we organize our healthcare system and our healthcare system delivery in the United States. It's not serving anyone. It's not serving structurally marginalized patients at all, but it's also not serving the care providers that are trying to work within that system. And because structural competency looks at systems and structures, we also look critically at the healthcare system and want to encourage the trainees in those workshops and the the clinicians that we're training to be structurally competent to be critical and to try and change that system because it is not currently designed to serve the needs of structurally marginalized patients or the clinicians that are trying to work within it. So I think by identifying burnout as that and identify and recognizing the ways in which the work environment and the organization of healthcare, and the inequitable ways in which it is organized, paid for and constrained within this country, contributes to poor health. And I think that recognition is is a critical point of change. So to the extent that structural competency can address burnout, I think it's to mobilize clinicians to advocate and push for a better system in which they can work so that they can become more connected to the real reason most clinicians I've ever met go into medicine in the first place, which is to take care of people and try and improve their lives.
1: Yeah, I really thank uh, your perspective and opinion on a, a very Complex question. And I think empowerment is critical to that solution and feeling like you have a sense of purpose and ability to actually advocate for your patients. In our closing uh, few minutes, Dr. Knight, many of our listeners are either medical students or soon to be practicing physicians. Do you have any closing pieces of advice or guidance as they embark on their journeys into medicine?
0: I would say that being able to connect with a diverse group of both academic medicine and community providers and community members during my journey my research work has been what has sustained me it's what's kept me honest and accountable in you know in the field of substance use disorder addiction medicine and harm reduction and it's kept the conversation and my positionality also honest about someone who's working within an institution as a researcher and we have a wonderful collaborative, the Tenderloin Neighborhood and, and UCSF Health Equity Collaborative that's been in operation since April of 2020, since basically since the beginning of COVID, although it had, it had iterations that existed previous to that, um, where we do that every Monday at noon and we, we collectively develop goals. And part of that is to, to do exactly that, to improve what I was mentioning before, to improve the healthcare system for structurally marginalized community members by bringing their voice to the table and trying to influence policy. And we created a system actually in part drawing from many of the aspects of structural competency curriculum to do community grand rounds where we flip the script on the expertise rather than being from academic medicine, and faculty and clinicians, it's from community members and then offer a space to dialogue about medical trauma and healthcare equity between community members, medical students, and faculty at UCSF. And I think that's a really promising model that I would say to seek out and create is sort of structural competency in action. It's creating that conversation and co-creating goals for health equity with community members and with people with very diverse positionalities and power and access and working collectively. I think that's the goal of structural competency, and that's what's sustained me And everybody can find a place in that to do that work. Uh, So I would encourage medical students, wherever they are, clinicians, to find that community and seek that out for whatever, wherever your particular corner (laughs) of the world exists, whatever specialty you're in or whatever you care about most. You can find that community and create that collective vision together, because I really think that's what structural competency is trying to activate. and, And I think there's a lot of promise there.
1: Dr. Knight, thank you so much for your time and perspective. I feel speaking with you was so educational, enlightening, and of course, inspirational. And hopefully our listeners feel a little bit more empowered in their own right, and their own spaces of influence. Thank you to the Backtable podcast team. And thank you again to faculty, Professor Dr. Kelly Knight. If you're interested, you can follow Dr. Knight on Twitter at Kelly Ray Knight as her Twitter handle. Thank you again. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dond, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon. With support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhirter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson.
0: And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang.
1: Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.